2006-2007, I was the preacher at a small church in Lakeland, Florida. And uh, one Sunday after the service, a gentleman walked up. He was about six foot five. He was in his 70s. And he asked me a question. He said, do you like the Indiana Hoosiers? And as my wife likes to say, is the Pope Catholic? Of course I love the Indiana Hoosiers. And he said, that's good. I do too. I said, that's awesome. He said, have you ever seen the movie Hoosiers? I said, have I ever seen the movie Hoosiers? Only like a thousand times, right? Every Indiana schoolboy who is, uh, loves basketball or school, anybody actually love in Indiana loves that movie because it's the dream that we all live. We all went to small schools or at least most of us. And it was the dream of David beating Goliath, overcoming the odds. And he said, that's interesting. He said, that movie was based on my high school basketball team that won the state title in the early 1952 uh, when I went to Milan High School. He said, my name's Glenn Butt, and um, I've been coming for a while. I'd love to get to know you a little bit. And so Glenn and I began a friendship, and he told me about that Milan team, and he told me about playing at IU under legendary coach uh, McCracken, who was with the Hurry and Hoosiers back then. And it was just a great time. But the movie Hoosiers is significant to me because it really describes, uh, it gives us a lot of life lessons. There are two founding principles, or one founding principle in this movie, and I'm going to share it with, in, through two different scenes. But let me just tell you a little bit about the movie. Small high school team. It's called Hickory in the movie. And a, a new coach who used to coach college but has been out of coaching for 12 years comes at the request of the, the principal and he becomes the head coach. His name is Norman Dale. Norman has his first practice and he knows that, the, that most of the people in town live and die with what happens with Hickory basketball. And the first practice, he has a kid who, who's just not listening, not bought into this idea of what it means to be a team. And so he kicks him out of practice. And um, there's a lot of scuttlebutt about that in, in the direction the coach has taken him because it's a small school and they only had six players to begin with, seven players. Well, eventually what Normandale's desire is, is through tough love and through by building a winning culture, he hopes to transform this team that's only aspiration is just to be a little bit better than last year. The first scene was traumatic shock to the community. They lost a player who had been foundational the year before. The second scene happens to be the first game that they're playing. Coach Dale has given the, the team direction. Listen, you must pass the ball four times before anyone takes a shot. Well, they go out in the game. They're getting beat. The score is getting out of hand. And one of their star players decides that he's not going to listen to Coach Dale. He's going to do what he thinks is best. And that's score the basketball. And he starts making shots. And the crowd is going crazy. And then Coach Dale takes him out of the game. He says, you know what I ask you to do. Sit down. Well, the game goes on. There's only six players available. One of the players on the floor fouls out. If you don't know basketball, that means they're disqualified. They can't play anymore. And they need another player. There's only one player available. And that's the star player that Coach Dale took out. And he gets up and he says, where are you going? He says, I'm going back in the game. He says, sit down. 
The referee comes over and says, coach, you need five on the floor. And a phrase that's become almost legendary to everyone in Indiana. He says, my team's on the floor. Four players. Obviously, they get beat that game. They go back to the locker room and everyone is just dejected. And they're thinking, what are we doing? You know, how is this ever going to work out? Coach Dale says this to his team. I'm only going to say this one time. All of you have the weekend to think about whether you want to be on this team or not under the following condition. What I say when it comes to this basketball team is the law. Absolutely and without discussion. He's setting a a winning culture. He's, He's building something greater. And sometimes there are growing pains before you can reach championship potential, right? We don't really see a lot about the team. We see what he does on Sunday by visiting a family. But the next game is an away game. And we don't know what happened behind the scenes. But we know this. When the team is going to that away game... Everybody's on the bus. Not one player has quit. Not one player has decided to walk away. They are fully committed to the mission of being a good basketball team. And friends, when it comes to mission, if you're not on the bus, you're never going to make it to the game. If you're not fully committed to your mission, you'll never accomplish it. Now, I want you to turn in your Bibles or your mobile devices. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 4, starting in verse 24 today. But I want to kind of recap for you what happened the last time we were together. The last time we were together, God had called Moses to this great journey to go back and free the Hebrew nation from the Egyptians. Uh, Moses was concerned. He was scared. God said, all those people who wanted you dead are now dead themselves. And we read immediately after talking with Jethro, his father-in-law, he puts his wife and two sons on donkeys and they head for the great city of Cairo or whatever the capital was. I think it was the capital back then. Um, You can Google me if you want. And we know that when he goes, he takes the staff of God with him, right? Which is symbolic of the manifestation of God being with him. The manifestation of the physical presence of God in, in, um, that is in his midst. As they travel, God gives Moses this incredible overview of what's about to happen. He says, here's an incredible vision of the future. This is an incredible vision of victory. This is an incredible vision of freedom that I'm going to perform through you to free my people. So let's go, Moses. The best is yet to come. And then the story shifts dramatically. The narrative changes. We've gone from launching of this battle warrior who's going into the fray on behalf of the God, the creator, to bring victory to God's people for his purpose, for his plan. But then it shifts immediately. This is what we read. Verse 24. On the way to Egypt, at a place where Moses and his family had stopped for the night, the Lord confronted him and was about to kill him. Now, understand in most of our English translations, it says that he stopped at an inn. But really, what the language is telling us, it didn't have to be an inn. It could have been a cave. It could have been a place that travelers had slept over. It was just a sleeping area for them to rest on their journey. And it's at this place, when they are resting, that we read that God confronts Moses. And 
is about to kill him. Let that sink in for just a second. We just read that God had prepared Moses his entire life. From the beginning of his birth, he was given a mission. He was born with a purpose. He was supposed to be the champion. God had allowed him to be raised in the the Egyptian palace so that he would learn from the greatest scholars, that he would learn military strategy, that he would learn how to be an influential speaker. He was taught at the highest universities. He was given the title of the prince of Egypt, and he was next in line, some say, to be the next pharaoh of one of the greatest nations in the world, And it was perfect. He understood the Hebrew people because of his family that he had grown up with in their home um, until it was time for him to go to the palace. Once he goes to the palace, he learns the Egyptian lifestyle. He learns the law. He learns what it would be like to confront the leader of the world. He wouldn't be uh, blown away in the presence of Pharaoh himself. I mean, this guy is tailor-made by God to change the course of a million and a half people. And then he spent 40 years in the wilderness, in the desert. Where he learned humility. And after a conversation with God, God tells him why he was created and what he was created to do. He takes care of the enemies. He makes sure Moses' family is taken care of. And they begin this journey to do something great together. And then all of a sudden, he stops at a day's end. And God shows up and is ticked off. That word is in the Hebrew. You can look it up later. (laughs) Friends, the question is why? Why? Without total commitment, just make it half of the way to your destination. I know that's not all written out in your notes, but add the part half of the way to your destination. Now, it's interesting if you look at the Hebrew text, which the Old Testament is written in, right? It's written by Moses. The first five books are written by Moses. The word says Yahweh, which if you remember, Yahweh was the name that God gave to Moses when he says, who should I tell is sending me Yahweh. But interestingly enough, at the earliest translations, when 70 or 72 Hebrew scholars got together to trans, um, translate the Hebrew text into Greek, what we call the Greek Septuagint, the word that they used to make it as understandable to the, the Greeks and those who read Greek, because it's all Greek to them anyway, the word that they use is an angel of the Lord. That's interesting. Why the change? Was it in the Hebrew that that this meaning is the angel of the Lord? Is it? I don't know, but we read this phrase that when the angel of the Lord met him, he was about to kill him. Now, that's an interesting phrase, right? What does that mean when it says the angel of the Lord or Yahweh was going to kill Moses? It's this. That the angel of the Lord appeared to him and most likely appeared in a threatening posture. Most likely with a sword drawn in his hand. If it's the angel of the Lord that was sent by God to deliver this message. It, it could also mean that he, was, he came down suddenly with a, a horrible 
disease or sickness and he was lingering on the precipice of death. But either way, why would God want to take out Moses, his chosen ambassador, his chosen general, his chosen leader of his people that he had so diligently taken time to prepare him in extraordinary ways for this mission and this journey? Why would God now, after all of this, feel led to kill his hand-picked, hand-chosen voice box to Pharaoh? I mean, literally, God had just sent him on this mission to free the Hebrew people. It doesn't make any sense. Or does it? Listen to the next part, verses 25 and 26. But Moses' wife, Zipporah, took a flint knife and circumcised her son. She touched his feet with the foreskin and said, Now you are a bridegroom of blood to me. When she said a bridegroom of blood, she was referring to the circumcision. After that... The Lord left him alone. It just seems so ambiguous. What is the text talking about? What is the the meaning of this seemingly unconnected story that's put in the middle of this great adventure? I mean, there is so much here. This is what we can read into this story from the context we're given. Immediately. When the Lord Yahweh or the angel of the Lord, maybe it's Christology, when Jesus uh, manifests on earth before he's been given the name of Jesus as the son of God, as a spokesman, there's a whole study called Christology. Whatever happens when, when the angel of the Lord or Yahweh comes to Moses, Zipporah and Moses immediately understand that they have done something to tick God off and that God is so angry he's going to take the life of Moses because of that. And either Moses is unable physically to do the right thing or the Bible is giving us an incredible image of a woman rising above the circumstances to act judiciously or wisely. I'm not sure. But what we read is that Zipporah, the wife of Moses, the mother of this young boy, takes a sword or takes a knife and circumcises her son. Why does that matter? Why are we told that Zipporah circumcises her son? I think the answer is in this. How could Moses be fully committed to God if he didn't participate in the Abrahamic covenant? Remember what a a covenant is? Anybody know what a covenant is? Raise your left hand if you do. A covenant is just an agreement between two parties or it's a promise. Do you remember the sign that God gave to Abraham when he said that your descendants will be mine and walk with me? And this is the covenant. This is the promise I'm giving you. And that sign will be circumcision. I love what John Ortberg wrote about this once, just picturing Abraham's response to God giving them circumcision as the sign. He's like, God, Noah got a rainbow. Couldn't we do like a decoder ring or a secret handshake or something instead? But every male child in the line of Abraham was to receive this circumcision. It would literally mark each male descendant as an heir to God's promise. Any descendant of Moses who refused circumcision was declaring themselves outside of God's covenant. So don't miss this, friends. 
Now, we have no idea what the backstory is with Moses and Zipporah in this journey, in this encounter with God. I mean, did Zipporah oppose her son being circumcised? Uh, was Moses just acquiescing to, to her desires? Did Moses think that it wasn't necessary to circumcise? It was most likely his younger son. He had two sons, right? Either Moses can't or didn't circumcise his son, most likely. Um, and Zipporah is forced to. Now, this is kind of an all-in moment for them. You, I love those, those dramatic scenes in movies like the Dead Poets Society when the kid stands on the chair and, and uh, they all rally around Robin Williams' character, right? It's that moment when, when the team comes together and like, uh, remember the Titans where the, the African-American linebacker and the white linebacker come together and they stand by each other and the team rallies around them. There are just those moments in life stories or in movies when people rally together. They say, we're all in. We understand the, the purpose of this mission. We know it's going to be challenging and difficult, but we are all in. You know what the point of no return originally designated? If you are flying in an aircraft and you reach a place where you can't make it back to your home base or any other airport because your fuel is so low, that is the point of no return. This is that point of no return moment for Moses and Zipporah. We are all in. We are going to make sure our child, both of our children are circumcised. And we are going forward. And this is the commitment that the Lord needed from them. Because you can't serve two masters. I think Jesus said that. So who will you serve? In Joshua chapter 24, there's this amazing scene that takes place. You know who Joshua is, right? He's the guy that follows after Moses in the leadership position of the Hebrew nation. He's the guy who gets to cross over the Jordan River and the, the river becomes dry so that they can walk carrying the Ark of the Covenant and they defeat Jericho. He's the guy who sends out the soldiers. He's originally one of the, the 12 spies that came back and only two of those guys, Caleb and Joshua, say, hey, we can take the city. We can take this nation because God is our God. And the other 10 said no so now is his time and he leads through the the victories of the promised land as as god leaves the hebrews and gives them what he had promised so long ago but now he's ending the end of his life and he knows that with peace comes sometimes a sedimentary resolve right we just kind of put it in neutral or park and we're no longer moving forward. We're no longer being challenged in our faith. There's no longer any big obstacles before us. So we don't have to rely on God like we used to. And so as he's getting ready to die, as he's in his later years of life, he calls the entire nation together and he speaks to them about their future. He speaks to them about their alternatives. He speaks to them about the choice and the options before them. And in front of the entire nation, he says this in Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 through 15. So fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols of your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Remember how many idols there were in Egypt that people worshipped? Between 1,500 and 2,000. You know when Aaron makes the golden bowl, uh, bowl the jewelry just kind of came together and out came this bowl. That's what the text says, right? One of the gods the Egyptians worshipped. And so he's saying, put away forever the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. 
But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today who you will serve. Would you prefer the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates? Or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live? But for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. It's one of those all-in moments. You can't sit on the fence anymore. You've got to decide, are you going to serve your culture? Are you going to serve your idol? Are you going to serve whatever is stealing the attention from the God that sits on the throne of your heart? What are you going to choose to do today? Who are you going to serve? Who are you going to trust? Who are you going to put your faith in? When life gets tough, when life is easy, you have to choose where are you going to be all-in. Because you can't serve two masters. And maybe we don't have those 2,000 idols in the way the Egyptians did today. But friends, I'm telling you, there are idols that are vying for the throne of your heart today. There are things like money and security and relationships and health and whatever else you want to name up there of our pursuits that God intended for good. And we have, that the enemy has turned and made it an idol into our life. Who are you going to choose today? Where are you going to be all in? Which God are you going to trust With your future. Because we read over and over and over again. Throughout both the Old and New Testament. That the God who created us is a jealous God. And he's not content with part of you. He's not content with just an edge of you. Or just a piece of your heart. He wants all of your heart. He wants all of your affection. He wants all of your focus. He wants to have like my dad said today. An intimate relationship with you. But you can't serve two masters. So who will you choose this day? Which God will be your God? And who will you follow? Because God wants all of your love, all of your devotion. And he wants to walk with you. In 1519, there was a Spanish explorer by the name of Cortez who was a Spanish conquistador and uh, adventurer. And he decided that he wanted to go and find the fabled fortune and treasures of the Aztec nation, which was one of the great empires that existed for over 600 years in the Mexico area. And so he landed with 500 soldiers and 100 sailors, giving him an army of 600 people. He came with 11 ships Uh, to the shores of the Yucatan. And they realized that even with 600, they were vastly outnumbered by a strong army. And as they realized what they were facing, there began to be an undercurrent, a ripple of discontent. And some of the soldiers, some of the sailors said, you know, we can't defeat this army. We're going to lose our lives. Do you know what they do when it comes to human sacrifices? I saw the Discovery Channel. I know. And they said, maybe it'd be better if we just went to Cuba. Maybe we should just get out of Yucatan, go to Cuba, relax with our Spanish friends and live our life. When Cortez heard about the undercurrent that was going throughout his army, he arrested the ringleaders and he brought his entire army of 600 people to the shores to look out over the 11 ships that had brought them there. And as they stood on the shoreline before them, they, their mouths were wide with astonishment when 10 of those ships was scuttled and sunk, leaving only one left to sail. 
And I said, Cortez, what, what are you doing? What, how are we going to get home? Even if we're victorious, you know, why would you do that? How are we going to get home? And he said, we're only going to get home if we go home in their ships. So let's go. And friends, by solidifying the unity of their team, by building a winning culture within that environment, they were able to move forward together as one without division, without looking back at the other alternatives and the other options. So who's going to scuttle their ship today on the back burner options that we all have kept open? Who's going to say, I'm not going to look to the side, uh, either side in my life anymore. I'm going to focus squarely on God. Who's going to trust him today with your finances and with your health and with your relationships and with the challenges of our, of our society in that we're facing as a world right now? Who are you going to trust? Where are you going to look to for your information and your hope and your salvation? Where is it that you are going to firmly plant your feet? Because you can't serve two masters. Either serve the Lord or serve the idols of your life. But as for me and my house, I can promise you we're going to serve the Lord. And what does it mean to be all in? It means to be in with our faith, with our finances, with our talents. It means to be all in by serving as camera operators or greeters or cooking in the back kitchen or serving people who are sitting down. It means maybe being a van driver so that other people can come who wouldn't normally have that option. It means loving people even when they're unlovable. It means being kind even when we don't feel like it. It means not allowing our anxiety to overtake us or our fear to drown us. It means that we believe the promises of God. And even if we leave this life, even if the very worst happens, we are okay with it because we know that when eternity happens, we're going to be there in the presence of God himself. What does it mean to be all in for you today? Because doubts are real. You've got to choose to do your due diligence, to study the arguments before you, and ultimately to have faith in the God who created you. Or to allow your faith to die. On the stump of unresolved questions. Here's the deal, friends. All through the New Testament, Jesus said, is called to be both Lord and Savior. And he's both. He saved us, so he becomes our Savior. But the part we forget about often is that he is our Lord. He is called to be our leader, and we need to follow him. He must be both. And our pursuit of him must be single-minded. We must focus on our goal. We must focus on our faith. We must focus on living out the fruit of the Spirit that the Holy Spirit does through us. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness and self-control thought I was going to forget that one didn't you anything else than single-minded pursuit 
will keep you from crossing the finish line. On April 11, 2015, Tanjay Pepio was running the 3,000 meter steeplechase for the University of Oregon. And as he was running at the Pepsi Team Invitational, uh, he was well ahead and he began to hear the cheers of his home crowd. And so as he ran, he began waving to the crowd and trying to pump them up. What he didn't know is that Um, Maron Simon was running with all of his heart and all of his effort and running on nothing but the the reserves that he had inside of him to try to get to that finish line. As Pepio continued to wave and slowed down a little bit to take his victor's lap, Simon pushed through and he beat Pepio by one-tenth of a second at the finish line. One-tenth of a second. Friends, if you want to win the race, you've got to run with all of your strength and with all of your might until the race is over. You cannot afford to allow distractions to to make you take um, different directions or side trails or, you know, get off on the, the emergency exit. You've got to continue to run even when you're tired. You've got to continue to run even when you think that there's no one behind you. You've got to continue to run not because you want to run as hard as you can, but because that's how God has created you. And he wants you to run and he wants to run with you because he loves you and he cares about you. And friends, so many times we miss this. He wants the very best for you. And sometimes, sometimes just like coach Dale, he has to use tough love and by building a winning culture inside of us so that we understand as we are, God loves us, but God loves us too much to keep us in that place. And he is going to stretch us and strengthen us and allow us to be torn down so that we can be built up stronger because he loves you and he cares about you. Will you turn to the person next to you and say, God loves you. Turn back to that person and says, well, I'm not sure about you, but the preacher said it. So (laughs) listen, at the end of his life, after being on the top 10 list of most influential upcomers under the age of 30, I made that part up, but it might be true. Saul becomes Paul after having experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus and his life is forever changed. And from that point on, he gives up all of the things that he had strived for in his past about becoming a Jew among Jews, his education, his money, his power, his influence. And he begins to run with all of his might after Jesus, even suffering beatings and being shipwrecked and being broken down and being attacked and being mocked and being lied to and being laughed about. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. <laughs> Friends, at the end of his life, and he is in the prison of Mamertinum, which is the, the national prison of the Romans where all of the, the worst criminals went, as he is standing in waist deep water, is, and Peter was also there, suffering in those conditions knowing that death is around the corner. He writes this to his spiritual son, Timothy. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will give me on the day of his return. 
Could any of us want for a more better ending? When your eulogy is given, what will people say about you? How will you be remembered? For what are you being remembered? Because it doesn't matter about your past. It doesn't necessarily even matter about your present. What matters is what God is going to do with you with a changed and fully devoted life in the future. So come on, buckle in. The best is yet to come. After Zipporah commits, after they are all in with the Abrahamic covenant and they're going to lead the people, the Hebrew people out of bondage, They can say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And we have done everything that the Lord has asked us. And after that, we read that the Lord left him alone. What is your calling? What is your challenge? What is the idol that's battling for the throne of your heart today? And how will you respond? I don't know what you'll say. I can't even begin to guess, but I know this. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Let's pray. God, I just thank you so much for the love that you have given to us. And God, I know, I know, I know, I know that there are challenges that surround us and that battle from within. I know that our insecurities and our anxiety and the temptations that the enemy puts before us are powerful and alluring, but God, we know at the end of the day, all of that will lead to nothing. We know that only a relationship and running with you and with your son is what matters. So God, today I pray that you would help us to clearly identify the idols that are jockeying for position in our hearts so that we can know how to combat those. And we pray through the power of the Holy Spirit that God, that you would help us to overcome the evil and the deception and the lies that the enemy tells us and that you would help us to be single-minded in our effort to run toward the prize which you have called us to. And God, at the end of our days, may we be able to say as Paul did, I have run the good race, I have fought the good fight and now lays before me the crown of life. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for coming to save us. Thank you for loving us enough, even in our idiocracy never giving up on us, never walking away from us, never forsaking us, always with an outstretched hand asking us to get back on the right path. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.